Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. In the previous program, at the ending, I happened to touch on the matter of the demise of South Africa under the regime that was forced upon it by the enlightened peoples of the Western worlds. And just how bad things have been, have gotten, and have been in South Africa in terms of vicious, ruthless, violent crime pervading the nation, terrorizing the nation turning it into one of the most violent, dangerous, dark places on the planet. Well, in approximately the same time, proximity time frame, then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, also had regime change forced upon it. And it has suffered mightily under the black Robert Mugabe regime, president for life, if you will, de facto president for life, dictator, vicious, ruthless, thug, dictator. But a man after Colin Kaepernick's heart, along with what has transpired in South Africa. And yes... These incredible instances of these men who, through sexual immorality, have managed to get themselves infected with AIDS, who then have preyed upon young virgin girls, imagining that they can be cured of AIDS by monstrously raping these girls. And of course, needless to say, it should go without saying that they're not using so-called protection when they're committing such crimes. And then you magnify that by the fact that it is easier for a female to contract AIDS from a male than the other way around. And it has been a monstrous, monstrous, unspeakable evil that has been perpetrated against the girls and the young women of South Africa. This during the reign of the wonderful black regime there in South Africa. It's been just a thing of beauty. But such improvements that have been championed by the United States of America's academia especially through the most exceedingly elitist such establishments, ivory halls, ivory palaces, but no, not just through the Ivy League, no, but across the nation, across the breadth and depth of the United States of America, Not only these elitist, high and mighty private institutions, 
but also all the way throughout the university system across this nation, through the land-grant universities and so forth, there was wonderfully orchestrated pressure brought to bear, political activism stirred up, and again, orchestrated, conspiratorially. Oh, but we know conspiracies don't happen. But it was conspiratorially done via the uh, godfather, if you will, of Barack Hussein Obama and Hillary Rodham Clinton. But great good stuff. But interestingly enough, these institutions that played such a role in forcing a political change in this nation, which forced, eh, pressured, coerced, rather than forced, premature panic withdrawal from South Vietnam, and which played such a role in the United States of America pressuring South Africa to undergo regime change and Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Interestingly enough, these universities that played such a role, so very many of them are so closely linked, so intimately related to the Saudi Arabian regime. Doesn't that seem just, I don't know, just a trifle remarkable? I I find it to be, of course, not shocking, not not even surprising. It's what I expect. Okay, I expect evil fruit from evil people, and I expect them to have no problem with gross hypocrisy and double standards because they are rife with them. And lies and hypocrisy are the stuff that they are so well-versed in, along with their propaganda. But United States colleges and universities, just since 2011, just 2011 through 2018, and we have a little ways to go still in 2018, have received more than a third of a billion dollars from the Saudi Arabian regime, Islamist regime. And they don't think there's any problem with that. Okay, and it comes in various different forms, contracts and gifts from Saudi Arabian regime, kingdom, so-called, through their nationally owned companies and their research institutes. And then also in the form of scholarship programs to provide for Saudis to come to the United States of America and study here. Not that any of them would ever commit terrorist acts. We know they would not. But what universities 
are included in this group, such high and mighty ones as MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It just doesn't get higher or mightier than MIT. But along with MIT, Tufts University, Harvard, UCAL, Berkeley, UCLA, Northwestern University. Yes, it's a thing of beauty. Texas A&M. It's just great. No problem. (laughs) Right? Tufts University, University of Michigan. All in bed with the Saudi Arabian kingdom, the Saudi Arabian Islamist regime that summarily beheads Christian missionaries if they're not from the United States of America and has been doing so for ages. But United States universities like these, these prestigious elite universities, Johns Hopkins University, Washington in the form of George Washington University, George Mason University, University of New Haven, Columbia University. And it's interesting that so much of this was promoted ostensibly to create peace and prosperity, you know, between the U.S., and Islamist Saudi Arabia to remove tensions that had arisen because of the September 11th, 2001 Islamist terrorist attacks that were launched by Saudi Arabian Islamist terrorists. But all is well, all is good. And, of course, these universities, they feel completely in the right. But, you know, perhaps it would make sense to suggest that if they can be so activist in promoting regime change in South Africa and Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, perhaps they should take a similar stance with regard to Islamist Saudi Arabia. And when I say these universities, not just the leadership of these universities, but the student body those beneficent, benevolent, wonderful student bodies that are the future of America, that are so wise and wonderful, 
and invariably managed to support evil, along with thinking that it's entirely appropriate and proper to remove all opposition to their agendas. That they have freedom to promote any and all evil that warms the cockles of their hearts, but to prevent freedom of speech, freedom of expression for any that are opposed to their views, even to the extent of using violence against such. But what do you expect in the places of higher learning, the sophisticated realms of academia here in the United States of America? It's the least we can expect, isn't it? Back to the monstrous slaughter that occurred at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Tree of Life Synagogue, where these three small congregations, Tree of Life, Dor Hadash, New Light, were attacked by this destroyer. It was stated, quote, I don't know why he thinks the Jews are responsible for all the ills in the world, but he's not the first and he won't be the last, end quote. Well, it's really very simple. (laughs) It really is. It's that he has been carefully taught. No, not in public education. I don't know what his sources are. I don't know what he watches and what he listens to. But he's been carefully taught, if you will, indoctrinated, propagandized to believe this, to embrace this to embrace this lie that the Jews are the source of all evil. Now, there are many within Jewry, Jewry leadership, and have been down preceding the time that Christ Jesus walked on this earth, whom Jesus referred to as being the synagogue of Satan, who used religious leadership position to do evil. For those of we, the people around the world, who don't believe that there is a Satan, don't believe that there is evil, don't believe uh, that there is God and there is heaven and there is anything else, um, well, then perhaps... It's unimaginable that Satan would, in fact, use every possible venue, every possible branch of government, branch of religion, to try to do evil to the kingdom of God to bring down 
God Almighty and to lift himself up in his place and supplant God. Perhaps that's unimaginable. But also for those who don't believe in God Almighty and his Holy Son, Jesus, and the Bible, for those who don't believe, then perhaps it's understandable that they would embrace the idea that they can commit evil, monstrous evil, and be rewarded for it. Not just in this lifetime. No, but afterwards. This is true in Islam. How many in Islam embracing the leadership, the teaching, the dogmas, the lies of Muhammad believe exactly that. Believe that they will be rewarded now (laughs) to some extent, but principally afterwards. In the next life, for doing evil, monstrous evil, committing unspeakable evil in this lifetime. But poor, ignorant Christians who believe the Bible and believe Jesus Christ and have a modicum of sense. A grain of mustard seed, mustard seed of godly wisdom. Of course, no otherwise. Evil, even if it is unpunished in this lifetime, will be punished in the next. But it is fascinating that Western society the advanced Western nations have rejected punishment of evil. And imagine that that it is doing judgment and justice to put mass murderers, serial murderers, torture murderers, and all of these other destroyers in jail for a few short years. That that is justice. That is justice working. (laughs) No, that's the perversion of justice. That's miscarriage of justice on a massive scale. And there are consequences now with unchecked monstrous violence, And there are consequences eternally, not for the governments as far as some sort of inanimate objects, but for the people who are responsible for these things. There are judgments to come. There is accountability, ultimately. But the Jews were used as a scapegoat by Hitler. He needed them. He couldn't get where he was going. He couldn't become chancellor and chancellor for life. He couldn't rule and reign over Germany without having the scapegoat to blame. And it's ironic looking at what Hitler 
with his Nazi Reich did in the early years, there's remarkable similarity with FDR as far as the programs, as far as what took place. I probably won't have time to get to that on this program, but remarkable similarity. But speaking of Hitler and his monstrous, unspeakable, unquenchable lust to annihilate the Jews and Christians, this world lost a good man very recently. And I'm going to mispronounce his name, Joachim Ronneberg, the Norwegian World War II resistance leader who led the successful attack on Hitler's heavy water plant in Norway. was in the southern region of Telemark in 1943. And it was a feat of spectacular heroism. But what Ronenberg said, Ronenberg has been active since the 1970s when he began trying to educate young people, educate them about the dangers of war, the dangers of war. What would you imagine that this man would have to say to the young people, warning them about the dangers of war? What immediately comes to mind? Would you think... (laughs) Obviously, it would be some extreme pacifist message, right? Interestingly enough, not so. Let me quote from Ronenberg for a moment. Quote, those growing up today need to understand that we must always be ready to fight for peace and freedom. End quote. Let me just repeat that, or at least a portion of that. We must always be ready to fight for peace and freedom. I know for a great many people throughout the Western nations, the idea of this is diametrically contrary to them as is seen in the governments, as is seen in the political leaders of those governments, that while, yes, there is acknowledgement, there is assent, there is lip service, that we need to oppose, you know, vicious, ruthless regimes (laughs) like those that the United States universities embrace and take gifts and favors from, but we need to oppose evil, 
But still, the idea that you fight for peace, wait, wait a minute, that's wrong. You don't fight for peace because fighting is contrary to peace. Fighting is antithetical to peace. Fighting is the absolute opposite of peace, right? You don't fight for peace, for freedom maybe, but peace? Well, Ronaberg knew better. He was 99 years young when he passed. But he said that those growing up today, and it should include those that are grown up, all peoples, need to understand that we must always be ready to fight for peace and freedom and to defend our families and loved ones from evil, from evil encroachment, from evil committed not just by various militarist regimes that have designs on bringing about a worldwide totalitarian regime, but also against all manner of other lesser, you could say, evils that have the inevitable result of bringing about ultimate enslavement. If we wait until there is invasion before resisting, it will be too late. Various, many people have opined about the blunders that Adolf Hitler made. And there were many. (laughs) There were many. Certain ones stand out in bold relief as the greatest blunders, such as invading Russia, breaking his peace pact with Stalin and invading Russia, was colossally, stupendously calamitous. But the greatest blunder that Hitler made was in seeking to annihilate the Jews. That was number one. That wasn't supposedly a military mistake, but it certainly had military consequences. Before I go further, let me just say I'm Brad Thomas, and this is after all is said and done. And whatever is right and good and true in this program is thanks to God Almighty and His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever is wrong, lacking, erring is due to me. Hitler telegraphed what he was going to do. In this day and age, our presidential candidates typically have 
written or had ghostwriters write their political bio, their presidential bios. This goes back to John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And uh, there's nothing wrong, (laughs) you know, uh, in love and war, all is fair. So plagiarism galore and what have you, (laughs) they can uh, use to accomplish their ends. It's all to the good, right? And if you happen to be one of those people like myself that's too sensitive about such things, too squeamish about such things, well, just stay out of politics. (laughs) You don't belong. But. To become president in the United States of America, you need to have a presidential bio or the equivalent of it. Now, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, Donald Trump didn't have a presidential bio, did he? Well, wait a minute, no. He's got his books going back to the art of the deal. But more importantly than that, he's got all of his television appearances, TV has been awash with Donald Trump, and he's been in the public eye, and he has been on radio, and he has been at major events, at major venues, and all of the major media elites played along and gave him earned Media, meaning free media, until such time as he became the presumptive nominee. And then they started to have second thoughts, but <laughs> it's always necessary. Well, dear old Adolf, like Karl Marx and these others, <laughs> Chairman Mao, he had his presidential bio too. He had Mein Kampf, which he penned without penning it. He dictated it. And it was written while he was in prison for a brief period of time in an extremely warm, fuzzy, cushy excuse of imprisonment. But in Mein Kampf, he went to war, a terrorist, evil, murderous war against the Jews. And he used monstrous, vicious, violent propaganda throughout Mein Kampf, promoting the dehumanization of the Jews, of the Hebrews, and calling for their annihilation and foreshadowing his plan of extermination. I've mentioned before, I don't understand the Christians that have voted for, that have supported Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham and Albert Arnold Gore Jr., and Barack Hussein Obama and Joe Biden and so forth, because of the amount of information that was out there about them, even that they authorized via presidential bios. With regard to Donald Trump, 
If you've listened to any programs before today, you should know that I was saying time and again that he was not God's man of faith and power for the hour. He was not the second coming of Ronald Reagan. He was not a conservative Republican. He was not a Christian. He was not fit for office. He did not have any godly wisdom. He was not an intellectual. And when I say intellectual in this case, I'm using it in the best sense of the word. Not some academician, but he was not a thinker like Ronald Reagan. Not a man of conviction and morals and mores. The opposite. And the only reason to vote for Donald Trump was because the alternative was Hillary Rodham Clinton or Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders, of course, (laughs) that would be uh, in the realm of write-in candidacy then for general election. But. But Donald, the Donald, our prez. Well, these are very interesting times, what's going on right now with regard to the midterm election. So I have to say something about them. And I'll start it off with mentioning Keith Ellison. He happens to be number two man. Numero dos at the Democratic National Committee. And he is running for office in Minnesota. And his candidacy is struggling right now. And the reason it's struggling is because of Mr. Ellison's Actions. Yes, Congressman Keith Ellison, Democrat, Minnesota. His actions. You see, it's come out uh, that he has engaged in domestic abuse. Oh, no, Democrats don't do that. Democrats are peacemakers. Democrats are pacifists. Democrats are not ones that commit domestic abuse. Certainly not. So, but anyway, it has hurt him. And maybe, just maybe, he will lose out because of this. Yes, and a former girlfriend of his has accused him of physical abuse, among other things. But his race is just one of those that is... uh, So exciting that's going on. But there are many exciting ones. And what's so curious about these times right now is this, is the the contrast, the extreme contrast uh, of, of what's taking place. On the one hand, we have a billionaire who is pushing mightily for impeachment of the president. 
and just gung-ho down that road. And then we have any number of Democrat office holders who are holding back from that, who are afraid to touch that because they're afraid that that is radioactive and that they're going to be hurt. It's not that they are against it. It's not that they wouldn't be in favor of it, but they're afraid to have any affiliation, any association with that, lest it come back to bite them, be a boomerang, and they be guilty by association, and they lose their cushy political offices as a result of that. So they are they're holding back. They're restraining themselves uh, for the most part. And then we have Democrats who are not only holding back from that, restraining themselves from any impeach the president movement, but who are even speaking out against Democrat leaders because they are running for U.S. Senate in states in which the president did extremely well, won by double digits and so forth. And it's just, it is a funny thing that's going on with these. But again, with politicians, first and foremost, this is just true 99.9% of the time. They do what they think is best for them. They say what they think is best for them. What helps them? And everything else gets shoved to the side. It's all about number one which is why Donald Trump really is so ideal for politics, because he has always been all about number one. And speaking of number one, and how he is no Reagan, and he is no no leader cut out of any meritorious cloth, our president has chosen to conduct himself in office in his own way. You know, it's Frank Sinatra's I did it my way all over again. And he likes to use what his staff refers to as executive time. You may not have heard the term previously, but it is known as executive time. And what that means is it's Trump time. He can use his work days any way he cares to. Yes, he is playing a remarkably large amount of golf. (laughs) He is, you know, there have been criticisms in the past about Ike playing golf. People admired his playing contract bridge, but they were critical of his spending so much time golfing. And then... With Bill Clinton, if it wasn't about his jogging and his dropping in at McDonald's, and it was his golfing. And Barack Hussein Obama also liked to busy himself out on the links. Well, President Trump is kind of, you know, taking it to the next level here. He he is the golfer-in-chief, but in addition to that, When he is in the office, he spends it in fascinating ways. Yes, 
He spends his time tweeting. Now, I know that's shocking. I, I know that undoubtedly uh, is hard to believe. But what, what he likes to do, even not just in the wee hours of the night, but during his workday, is he watches TV, he phones friends, he tweets. He tweets his reactions to what he sees on TV and what he sees on Twitter. And, I mean, it is remarkable. It's enough to make you almost say, yes, John Brennan, he needs to be presidential. But again, this is the kind of nonsense that he engaged in during the campaign for presidency. He has been tweeter-in-chief. He, he is the celebrity president. You know, these supposedly this terrible uncivility, non-civility, anti-civility in politics only came about very recently, right? Well, if you go back to when Ronald Reagan was running for president and when he was in office, he was the mark, he was the target of so much vicious, ruthless Character assassination continually throughout the campaigning and throughout his time in office and was always being made out to be less than intelligent and less than industrious and uninformed and uncaring and what have you. All the things that Donald Trump is, President Reagan was made out to be before he was president and while he was president. But now we have a president that actually is that way. (laughs) And so President Reagan was referred to scathingly, derogatorily, as being the, the, what was the term? It's eluding me now. Cellophane president or the, that's not quite right, (laughs) whatever it was. Um, it's that word is eluding me, but it was that anything that charges made against him that they slid off, you know, they didn't stick. Well, our president, he's, it's not that, that criticisms don't stick. It's that he is, he's able to continue on regardless. And it's, uh, it's not that he doesn't care Because, as you know, he is forever tweeting his extreme, um, enormous upset about this, that, and the other thing. But, anyway, he continues on. And he is spending large amounts of his limited office hours in ways that are hard to imagine a president doing. Because... Believe it or not, a president really does have a lot they should be doing, they should be attending to, and the only reason to run for president, the only reason that is justifiable is that you are going to do everything in your power to make things better, to make things less unjust, less unrighteous, less depraved. 
and so forth. But instead, we have Donald Trump as our president. So there was a jobs report that just came out touting, oh, how good things were economically. (laughs) Meanwhile, companies continue to fail. And when I say companies, I mean stores, department stores, and mainstream, mainline companies, large companies, huge companies, continue to struggle and to suffer and to fail. Uh, Not the dot-coms. The dot-coms just keep rolling on and rolling in the billions, you know. <laughs> but unless unless their stock suffers like it did here over the past couple weeks, uh, Jeff Bezos, his stock uh, fell by, I can't remember how much it was, $15 billion or, you know, some modest figure like that. But uh, it will, uh, until the stock market takes a permanent dive, it will continue to increase. And uh, so... He's somewhere, his net worth is supposed to be in, in the vicinity of $150 billion. <laughs> He picked up an extra, how much? Uh, more than $50 billion last year, I think. So uh, he's really hurting. But for those who were not beneficiaries of the great jobs report and of the great booming economy that we supposedly are enjoying... The farmers, the farmers and ranchers continue to scratch out an existence. And it has been so bad in dairy farming that they lose money every time they milk their cows. The prices are absolutely unable to support there being such a thing as a dairy farming industry. And this is due in part to global milk production as well. But it's one of those ironies that the more efficient the farming is, the less profitable it is. And... While things were told that things are so good in the economy and so forth, in point of fact, one day down the road, here in the not distant future, this nation will find itself limited in all likelihood to only huge factory farms, regardless what the farming is that's being done. So we're getting where Russia got to, but by different route, by a different route, not by communist revolution, but by economic destruction of farming and the wonderful estate taxes, the wonderful death taxes that Democrats are so fond of that they have used to bankrupt farming and ranching families for so very many decades. And yet, these Democrats keep getting elected and reelected in not just places in New York and California, Illinois, 
but in the breadbasket of America. And they keep doing their evil at the state level and also the federal. And this nation is in dire straits with regard to the health of its farming and ranching because the families cannot eke out a living. They literally cannot. It's just absolutely monstrous. Meanwhile, we employ vast armies of people in the government, in the government sector, not producing goods, right? Not producing food, not producing drink, but instead in the military and in all of the law enforcement-related departments and agencies, and then all of the massive bureaucracy for these and for all of the rest of the government departments and agencies. It's just phenomenal the numbers of people that are employed these ways and that are paid very well, thank you, and get excellent benefits, thank you, and so are able to stimulate the economy. (laughs) Uh, But production of the most necessary, essential items for this nation and for any nation, those call them industries or what you will, are being destroyed, systematically destroyed. And this nation, one day, will not be able to feed itself thanks to this economic war that's been waged against farmers and ranchers, waged all manner of ways. Oh, I know you can say, well, what about price supports? You know, what about us paying farmers not to farm and so on and so forth? There is nothing that has been done right from a government standpoint with regard to our farmers and our ranchers, with regard to an agricultural base for this nation. Nothing's been done right. I mean, we have continued, we have survived by the grace of God and by the labors of people who work extremely long and hard and have little or nothing or less than nothing to show for it and struggle along in debt year after year because of how detrimental circumstances are for them. And it's... To me, appalling that our politicians, our political leaders, from the lowliest on up to the president, just go on talking about, you know, how good things are and this and that and the other thing and ignore, or, oh, they'll talk about how bad things are on occasion if, it, <laughs> if they can get votes out of it, and then they, they move on to the next subject. And they only continue to make things worse and not better. But our midterm elections will be a testimony to that, a mute testimony to this incredible way we do things here in the United States of America. Perhaps you heard about the little doggy named Hero 
this family, they adopted this doggy that already had the name Hero. And doggy is a mix. You know, people would call him a mutt. And I don't know, somewhere in the vicinity of a year old. So some would say, no, that's not a puppy. That's a dog. Well, they brought him home from the Humane Society. And he sleeps with their son, their nine-year-old son, who has juvenile onset diabetes, type 1 diabetes. And this doggy hero, they didn't know if, if he could even bark. They didn't know if he could bark. But he woke everybody up one night and got them to come to Weston's room and they found that his insulin pump was not working. This little doggy that had been in their home for a couple months saved this precious little boy's life. And there are countless such stories with regard to dogs. If you don't have one, I recommend you seriously consider getting one. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you.